Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The judge in the Trump classified documents case has set a new trial date that comes before the 2024 presidential election. What she says about Trump's argument that he can't get a fair trial. The White House announces new actions to regulate AI. What Microsoft, Google and other AI giants are pledging to do and what could come next in legislation. Data about decreased border encounters questioned. And a new whistleblower allegation revealed today, did U.S. Customs and Border Protection retaliate against one of their own? And what role does the U.S. play in the Indo-Pacific when it comes to countering communist China? Two Biden administration officials break it down for us. It appears the Wagner Group's failed mutiny in Russia has set off a chain reaction. Putin now tells Poland that any attack on Belarus will be considered the same as attacking Russia itself. In the Trump classified documents case, today Judge Eileen Cannon set a May 2024 trial date. Meanwhile, former attorney Michael Cohen settled his case against Trump's company. Entity's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. In a middle-of-the-road decision today, Judge Eileen Cannon issued an order that sets a new trial date in the classified documents case against former President Trump. The May 20, 2024 trial date is a compromise between a request from prosecutors for a December date and the defense's request to schedule it after the 2024 presidential election. The defense had argued that having the trial before the election would interfere with Trump's campaign schedule, as well as several other legal cases. Cannon thought the government's December date was too soon. She said in her order that the government's proposed schedule is atypically accelerated and inconsistent with ensuring a fair trial. She noted the over one million documents that the defense needed to review. On the other hand, she disagreed with some of the defense arguments, which she called unnecessary most principally the likelihood of insurmountable prejudice in jury selection stemming from publicity about the 2024 presidential election. The government's request for a protective order related to classified documents is rescheduled for July 27. In other Trump legal news, former attorney Michael Cohen today settled his case against Trump's company. Cohen claimed that he got stuck with big legal bills after getting involved in investigations into the former president. For example, he said the company stopped paying after he began cooperating with federal prosecutors in their investigations into Trump's business dealings in Russia. Trump's company contended that Cohen's involvement in the federal investigation was a personal decision, as he was trying to reduce his own criminal legal exposure. Trump has now sued Cohen, accusing him of violating a company confidentiality agreement. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Several Republican House members are looking to censure progressive Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, this over her calling Israel a racist state, last week. Republican Congressman Andy Ogles of Tennessee, Randy Weber of Texas, and Jeff Duncan of South Carolina filed a censor resolution on Thursday. It's not yet clear if GOP leaders will bring it to the House floor. While speaking at Netroots Nation panel in Chicago last weekend, Jayapal called Israel a racist state. She has since walked back the remark but stopped short of an apology. Her comment 
drew criticism from the House Democratic leadership and a number of Democrats. Earlier this week, Jayapal voted yes on a resolution affirming support for Israel. The Biden administration escalating its involvement in regulating AI as top tech companies vow to cooperate. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Announcing new actions today, President Biden says the U.S. must guard itself from the threats of artificial intelligence. We'll see more technology change in the next 10 years or even in the next few years than we've seen in the last 50 years. But we must be clear-eyed and vigilant about the threats emerging from emerging technologies that can pose, don't have to, but can pose to our democracy and our values. The White House announced on Friday that seven leading AI companies, including Google, Microsoft, Meta, and OpenAI, have all agreed to make sure that their AI products are safe before releasing them. And as part of the new pledge, these companies will also have to make it easier for users to determine if an image, a video, or a text was generated by AI instead of humans. To develop safe, secure, and trustworthy technologies that benefit society and uphold our values. These commitments are real and they're concrete. But even with the new pledge, President Biden says there still needs to be new laws to regulate the fast-evolving technology. And we're going to work with both parties to develop appropriate legislation and regulation. And President Biden says that in the coming weeks, he will take executive action to regulate AI. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. A new whistleblower allegation, this time about retaliation at U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP. This as the Biden administration claims border encounters have dropped due to their new immigration policies, though some are challenging the data. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill. Two committee chairman, Comer of Oversight and Green of Homeland Security, sent a letter to CBP commissioner. In that letter, they detail allegations from a whistleblower who accuses the agency of retaliating by relocating Chief Patrol Agent Gregory Bovino from his El Centro border patrol sector to the D.C. headquarters. This is after the chief gave a transcribed interview to the committees, and also CBP did not allow the chief to come and testify publicly before Congress on the border issue back in February. Now the chairman want a briefing from CBP as well as documents related to their decision to relocate the chief. And this comes at a time when the Department of Homeland Security is reporting a 65% drop in the number of illegal encounters since May. Critics argue that this is simply because the Biden administration's policies are changing the way they're processing what would be illegal immigrants. Here's how Congressman Chip Roy explains it that we've had almost half a million people processed through the one app. So all we're doing is diverting how people are coming to, to Texas. But DHS Secretary Mayorkas says that these newly created legal pathways deter cartel smuggling. We use our discretionary authority under humanitarian parole. We have sought to disincentivize people from taking that dangerous journey. And Democrats defend this, saying that policies like this are what's needed in the current geopolitical atmosphere. The world is economically devastated, and the only game in town, meaning the only economy in the world today that is hitting on all eight cylinders, is the United States of America. But Republicans are sticking to their point of view that Secretary Mayorkas has lost operational control of the border. Some Republicans have filed articles of impeachment against Mayorkas to remove him from office. Others want to cancel his salary. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News.
And how does the U.S. strategy in the Indo-Pacific shape global dynamics? And what role does China play in that region? Two Washington officials made some assessments today. NTD's Sam Wang brings us the details. The Brookings Institution hosted two Biden administration officials discussing the strategic importance of the Indo-Pacific alliance. We believe that much of the history of the 21st century will be written in the Indo-Pacific. America's future security and prosperity is inextricably uh, linked to developments uh, in this consequential region. Dan Crittenbrink serves as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. He noted that the U.S. is committed to strengthening partnerships in the Indo-Pacific to enforce rule-based international order. Crittenbrink mentioned that China remains a challenge for regional security and the best way to manage that hurdle is to bolster allies. We have a regional strategy of which China is a part and not the other way around. Our uh, allies and partners are intrinsically valuable to us. That's going to be the focus uh, of our efforts uh, across the region. China has recently stepped up its aggression in the Indo-Pacific region. Back in May, a Chinese fighter jet made a dangerous maneuver towards a U.S. aircraft, cutting right in front of its nose. According to the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, that move forced the U.S. aircraft to fly through its wake turbulence. On the defense front, Eli Ratner, the Assistant Secretary of State for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, said that Washington is working closely with Australia and the U.K. Uh, so conventionally armed nuclear-powered uh, submarine uh, for the Australians uh, that we would be working on trilaterally with the U.K. as well. We completed uh, a decision around the optimal pathway at the end of the 18-month consultation period. As for Washington's next move in the Indo-Pacific, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has a trip to the region scheduled for next week. He'll be visiting Tonga, New Zealand and Australia. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. Up next, Florida considering legal action against Anheuser-Busch. Governor Ron DeSantis says investments in Bud Light's parent company are hurting the state's pension fund. And a Southern California school district votes to require schools to notify parents if their child identifies as transgender. Both supporters and critics of the policy attended the heated meeting. These stories and more when we return. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis going against Anheuser-Busch. Florida's state pension fund is invested in Bud Light's parent company, which the governor is now investigating. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is re-evaluating the state's pension fund investments in Anheuser-Busch. The beverage company took a huge hit in sales that came after Bud Light worked with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney for promotional content. Months afterwards, Bud Light sales are still down over 20%. DeSantis now says the company violated legal responsibilities to its shareholders. Companies are supposed to aim for maximum profit. DeSantis alleges Anheuser-Busch put ideological motivations before profit. The governor sent a letter to the pension fund's interim director, writing, We must prudently manage the funds of Florida's hardworking law enforcement officers, teachers, firefighters and first responders in a manner that focuses on growing returns, not subsidizing an ideological agenda through woke virtue signaling. DeSantis told Fox News that the fund already took a hit due to the drop in Bud Light sales. Watch. 
Well, we had over $50 million worth of InBev stock in the pension. Of course, Florida's pension funds are about $180 billion. So it's a pretty big uh, endeavor, uh, but it has absolutely hurt teachers. It has absolutely hurt uh, other pensioners. DeSantis is now considering taking legal actions against Anheuser-Busch. Meanwhile, political experts are speculating DeSantis is rebooting his campaign. That's because the governor keeps trailing far behind former President Trump in the polls. Reports came out this week saying his campaign let go a few staffers. According to NBC, voters might see the changes in the way he campaigns, for example, attending smaller events in order to save money and sitting down for interviews with a wider range of national media outlets. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. A school district in Southern California has decided to notify parents if their child is identifying as transgender. The heated board meeting lasted nearly four hours, and California's superintendent of public instruction was escorted out at one point. The Chino Valley Unified School District voted to require schools to notify parents if their child identifies as transgender. Mr. Na? Aye. And I'm a yes. The motion passes four to one. Under this new policy, the district schools let parents know if their child is identifying as a gender different from what is listed on their birth certificate. This applies to students who want to change their names and pronouns and access gender-based bathrooms, sports teams, and locker rooms. Supporters of the policy say parents have the right to know if their child is coming out. I should be the one to consult my children. Nobody else has the right to say what I can or cannot teach my children. Just like I'm not pushing my family values on anybody, I don't want them to push it on my family. But critics of the decision say it impacts gender identity and safety. This policy will out a student, putting them into a hostile household, which will further their mental degradation to the point where they will harm themselves. During the meeting, California Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurman, also spoke in support of LGBT students. That nearly half of students who identify as being LGBTQ plus are considering suicide. I ask you to consider this, that the policy that you consider tonight not only may fall outside of the laws that respect privacy and safety for our students, but may put our students at risk because they may not be in homes where they can be safe. After exceeding the one-minute time limit, multiple security personnel escorted him away. But Board President Sonia Shah argued that politicians shouldn't assume that non-affirming households would be a toxic environment for their kids. Right now, they're saying affirming, uh, non-affirming households are, are dangerous. Where do you get that? Actually, if you ask me, and, and I've listened to tons of parents, it's actually very safe to be a non-affirming, loving, caring household. Because guess what? They're going to provide and pull their child in closer the necessary needs that they need to be able to get better. In the end, the board passed the policy in a four-to-one vote, with only board member Donald Bridge voting no. And staying with schools, the White House recently announced a new Department of Education coordinator to take action against what they said is the growing threat that book bans pose for the civil rights of students. The statement also suggests that schools better put the books back on the shelves or lose federal funding. But parents and some lawmakers are pushing back. 
Darlene Sanchez is a reporter for the Epic Times and she's been covering this topic. I spoke with her earlier today. Darlene, welcome. Educational materials in schools is in the spotlight. Parents you spoke to are concerned that they're being targeted by the federal government for restricting sexually explicit books from schools. What's their message? Well, parents basically have been fighting, you know, for I guess a good two years or so to try to remove sexually explicit materials that have been showing up inside of uh, their school libraries and sometimes inside of classrooms. So this has been an ongoing battle for them. And um, what the concern is right now is that the Biden administration is basically found to uh, what they see as a workaround. And, you know, they've, uh, parents have been at the uh, local level, at the grassroots level, trying to get school board uh, people elected that are more conservative and believe the way they do. So now, you know, the game has changed. And so what other kinds of actions has the department taken to stop this from happening? Well, what people are comparing this to is when, um, you know, the Department of Justice started targe targeting parents um, that would show up at school board meetings over CRT and transgenderism, bathroom issues like that, especially like up in Loudoun County, Virginia, that would probably be the best example. So now the Biden administration's come up with a plan to go after schools uh, to try to deny them federal funding. Um, based on them banning these books, saying that you are discriminating against the LGBT community, and therefore you're making this hostile to them, and therefore we're gonna remove uh, your funding if you don't put them back. And what kinds of books does this relate to exactly? Some of these books, um, Stephanie, are very um, disturbing. They're so disturbing that they have been shut down. A lot of parents who have read these, there have been articles out there about parents reading some of the excerpts from these books at school board meetings and actually having their mics cut off because they said, that's inappropriate. We can't have you um, reading that type of material uh, in public. And then, of course, the argument is, well, then why are you letting your children read it? I mean, it has to do with child rape. It has to do with um, describing sexual acts between both um, homosexual and um, straight uh, children and, you know, young adults. Um, and especially, like I said, there was some concerning child rape. And it's very disturbing to the parents uh, nationwide. Some of these books have been under attack, like uh, Gender Queer is one of them. Um, there was others like Lawn Boy, The Bluest Eye, those type of books. Some states are pushing back, states like Texas, against yes. the administration. With, they're also uh, implementing laws that are restricting explicit, sexually explicit books from public schools. What does Texas's provision entail? Well, Texas, for example, it has kind of a, a two-pronged approach. Um, it's both um, something has to do with the, the actual publishers. They have to go in and they have to rate these books whether or not they're, they have sexual content or whether or not, um, you know, they're appropriate for the level, the grade level that they're targeted at. That's one thing. And another, you know, gives parents, of course, the ability to, to um, ask for them to be removed as well, um, you know, that they can't be in there. Parents can also opt out. So if it's, in other words, it's not like the parent has to go in there and find the book 
the, the parent can opt out just across the board and not have to worry about it. So that's how Texas is handling it. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach. Other states have just said, you know, um, under uh, obscenity laws, these books, we can't allow them because they are obscene and considered pornographic. Um, and that's an approach that's worked as well. Thank you very much for your update, Darlene Sanchez. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And in the war between Russia and Ukraine, the attempted mutiny by the Wagner Group has apparently set off a chain reaction involving Belarus, Poland, and Russia. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest. To give some background, Yevgeny Prigozhin is the leader of the Wagner Group, a private mercenary force with ties to Russia. Prigozhin led a failed mutiny against the Russian military just a few weeks ago. And that rebellion ended with an agreement allowing Wagner fighters to relocate to Belarus. Now these same fighters are reportedly training Belarusian special forces. Polish residents living near the Belarusian border have reported hearing what they believe to be the sounds of this training, including gunshots and helicopters. In response, Poland deployed a thousand troops to its border with Belarus. Russian President Vladimir Putin took note of the Polish troop movement and issued this warning. As for Belarus, it is part of the Union state. Aggression against Belarus will mean aggression against the Russian Federation. Meanwhile, on Friday, Russia launched missiles at Ukrainian grain facilities for the fourth day in a row. According to the Ukrainian governor of the region, the attack injured two people in the Ukrainian port city of Odessa. The strike also destroyed 100 tons of peas and 20 tons of barley. Russia blamed Ukraine for initiating attacks from the area, and Ukraine denied launching any such attacks. And most recently, Ukraine also denied being ungrateful for the weapons packages it received from other countries. British media quoted Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky as saying British Defense Minister Ben Wallace should let him know how to get up in the morning and express his gratitude. The Ukrainian ambassador to the UK later admitted that the president's comment contained a bit of sarcasm. Zelensky also dismissed the ambassador from his post in the UK. Meanwhile in Ukraine, things on the battlefield continue to escalate. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said on Thursday that Ukrainian forces have started using cluster bombs in its fight against Russia. These bombs can be considered controversial because not all of the bomblets detonate after being launched, and this may cause civilian casualties in the future. Kirby also said that the cluster bombs are having an impact on Russia's defense lines. Jason Perry. NTD News. Coming up, singer Tony Bennett has died. The pop vocalist is best known for his 1962 hit, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Are we seeing an exodus of businesses from San Francisco? A CEO says the city will never go back to the way it was before. More in just a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. A federal judge has set May 20th, 2024 as the start date for former President Trump's classified documents trial. This is a compromise between Trump's and the Justice Department's requests. 
President Biden and seven leading artificial intelligence companies announce a pledge to make the technology safer. Biden also promises to announce further regulation of AI. In the war between Russia and Ukraine, the Wagner Group is now training Belarusian special forces. And Russian forces are bombing Ukrainian grain facilities for the fourth day in a row. Legendary singer Tony Bennett has died. His death today comes years after a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Bennett is known for his prolific and crooner-style output of jazzy standards from the American Songbook. Audiences around the world have enjoyed his concerts and shows for more than 70 years. Bennett also made more than 150 recordings and has sold an estimated 60 million records. A career highlight was in 1962 when Bennett performed at Carnegie Hall and released his signature song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Later in his career, Bennett collaborated with a number of younger stars, including Lady Gaga. Bennett was also known for serving in the military and helping liberate a German concentration camp, as well as for his work with the civil rights movement. Bennett was 96 years old. And Taylor Swift is set to be the next mayor of Santa Clara for just two days in the honorary sense. The city has been rolling out the red carpet for the American singer-songwriter as her international tour is coming to Silicon Valley next week. NTD's David Lamb hears from the city mayor who made a special presentation. The city of Santa Clara is swiftly changing its name to Swifty Clara due to Taylor Swift coming into town next week. Now we spoke to city officials and big Taylor Swift fans on this big decision. Staff at Santa Clara's City Hall, including Mayor Lisa Gilmore, consider themselves Swifties, the nickname for Taylor Swift fans. That's why they played this presentation during a July 18th city meeting, a proclamation for the 33-year-old Swift ahead of her Eras Tour visit. Let it roll. <laughs> It's me. Hi, Mayor Gilmore. It's me. I'm enchanted to share news that will make your wildest dreams come alive. Gilmore and council member Kathy Watanabe says Swift is a cultural icon for the community. Funnily enough, I was listening to Karma on the way over here, and, and I think that's a really good song. And then I love Hey, It's Me, you know. Uh, she, there are just so many songs. You really can't pick one. When Swift's era tour was announced, the mayor said the public contacted the city to do something to recognize the fans and artists. Along with the city name change, Swift herself gets the title of honorary mayor. We have a serious business here in running the city, and I'm a, a serious mayor, but I thought this is an opportunity to bring some fun to our community, to change our name. We've never done that before. Swift is set to perform at the Levi's Stadium on July 28th to 29th. So how did they come up with Swifty Clara? I will not take full credit. There was a lot of people at the city that worked on it. But first, um, part of the city's name starts with an S. And, you know, we really wanted to be a part of the Swift spirit and the Aries tour that is sort of sweeping the nation. Let's create a love story that echoes through the ages. Swifty Clara, your are evermore. Mayor Gilmore told me that her daughter thought the video was interesting, but her friends loved it even more so. Now with this concert, it's expected to bring in lots of revenue and boost the economy of the city when Taylor Swift comes into town. 
Reporting in soon-to-be Swifty Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. All right, and next, San Francisco is seeing employees refusing to go back to the office, and this is impacting the city's economy. NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with a risk consultant about if remote work is here to stay. And now joining me is Derek Giorgino, risk consultant in the greater LA area and NTD contributor. So Derek, uh, it seems like more and more people are now talking, are, are now talking about San Francisco's empty office spaces and, and fleeing businesses. You know, office workers going remote, um, it actually reduced the city's tax revenue by almost half a billion dollars. That's according to a study. Um, maybe, maybe start off, start us off with some context. What is happening here? Yeah, well, last week, Salesforce's uh, CEO, Mark Benioff, vocalized his concern about the state of metropolitan San Francisco. This man has a very close thumb on the pulse of what is happening in that city. And what he said, and I quote, is that the city is never going back to the way it was. Uh, to your point, an, an increasing remote workforce is a huge driver of it. Obviously, the pandemic transformed our nation's workforce into a more remote one. Um, and it's resulted in dwindling business hour crowds in a lot of metropolitan areas throughout the United States, but particularly in San Francisco. And I've even seen it myself, serving various clients throughout Los Angeles. I've seen many restaurants and family businesses close in metropolitan areas that I serve uh, because of this increasingly remote workforce. Salesforce CEO saying that it'll never go back to normal. W what does that mean, normal, to you? I would say pre-pandemic foot traffic, pre-pandemic uh, business activity, big brands, huge brands continue to leave downtown San Francisco. San Francisco is undergoing what Axios and many others are referring to as uh, a retail exodus, Don. And, 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 you know, bear with me here. There's a little bit of a list that I want to read out, uh, and it's by no means inclusive of all the brands leaving the city, but it's significant. November 2020, during the pandemic, H&M closed its flagship store in downtown San Francisco. March 2021, Uniqlo, multi-billion dollar clothing retailer, closes its Union Square store. Uh, May 2023, Nordstrom, multi-billion dollar department store chain that many of your viewers are probably familiar with, cited rising crime in the city, closed its San Francisco stores. In January of this year, Meta, which needs no introduction, announced that it's drastically reducing its San Francisco office space. The list goes on and on. Whole Foods, Amazon Fresh, and this retail exodus is doing a lot of damage to the local economy there. All right, just one final question, and this has to do with economic impact with the exodus uh, that we're seeing in San Francisco. Uh, I would imagine this would have uh, an impact on GDP overall. I mean, if, if uh, businesses are leaving, San Francisco is probably getting less tax revenue, and that directly impacts economic growth. I mean, what are some of the economic, economic impacts that you can see? Well, it's also even simpler than that, Don. Like, the population of San Francisco is decreasing in terms of people who just live there. And in the Bay Area, the population of San Francisco, I think, decreased by over 7% from 2020 to 2022. And uh, when retailers leave and they vacate all this office space, it's incredibly damaging to the real estate economy of San Francisco. But when CEOs start to chirp like that, sometimes they vote with their feet and they take off. I would be very concerned if I was San Francisco. Well, all right, thank you so much today, Derek. Always great to hear your insight. Thanks for having me, Don, as always, appreciate it. Car theft is on the rise, up one third compa compared with last year. 
So what should you do if you want your car to remain in your possession? Here are some of the most important tips. Car theft continues to soar, up by a third compared to thefts in the first half of 2022. And the average monthly theft rate is still going up. So if you want to avoid the nightmare of seeing an empty parking spot where your car used to be, what should you do? The basics. Never leave the car with the doors unlocked or with the windows rolled down. Try to park in either a garage or a well-lit area. And avoid leaving valuable objects in the car in plain sight. This includes money, phones, laptops, jewelry, cameras, and clothing. Objects like these could attract the attention of thieves. It's up to you to be responsible for your vehicle, where you park it, how you park it, and of course not making it open for people to think this is an easy vehicle to steal. Lauren Fix is an automotive expert at Car Coach Reports. She spent over 20 years advising people on how to avoid car theft. She says a simple theft deterrent is a steering wheel lock, also known as a club. A club locks the steering wheel so it will deter visually someone thinking, I'm not going to steal this car. It's, it's just not worth it. Too much time, easy to get caught. To use the club, simply open it, extend the prongs, and have the prongs fit around both sides of the steering wheel. Now you can lock it in place, usually with a key. Now the club will block the steering wheel from moving, making the car very hard to steal. Be sure not to lose the key. There are also many advanced security features. GPS tracking systems. Some cars have these built in. When the car is stolen, you can track its location on your phone. Car immobilization systems. These can lock the wheels or shut off the engine when the system detects something wrong. Interior-exterior surveillance cameras. These help monitor any suspicious activity. One of the most widely used, car alarms. They emit a very loud sound when someone starts tampering with the vehicle. Bay Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, an Idaho college town has settled a lawsuit with Christians who sued the city after a judge said they were wrongfully arrested during a protest against COVID-19 regulations. And an act of kindness helped to re return a woman's lost wedding ring. A scuba diver retrieved the ring from a lake in California. Stay tuned for that story after the break. College town of Moscow, Idaho has agreed to pay out $300,000 to settle a lawsuit with Christians arrested during a COVID-19 protest. After staging an outdoor Psalm Sing protest against COVID-19 orders outside City Hall, Gabrielle Wrench and Sean and Rachel Benet found themselves in legal trouble. They were arrested in September 2020 and later sued the city for wrongful arrest. The peaceful protest, consisting of singing psalms, allegedly violated social distancing rules in place at the time. The city has now agreed to pay $300,000 to settle the civil suit. The trio initially sought to dismiss criminal charges, citing religious freedom protections under the U.S. Constitution. Although the charges were eventually dropped, the legal defense fees remained, prompting the lawsuit. Were they targeted for the kind of protesting they were doing, singing psalms outside City Hall? Ryan Helfenbein, the executive director at the Standing for Freedom Center, seems to think so. Earlier today, NTD's Jack Bradley spoke with him on this. And now we welcome to the program Ryan Helfenbein, executive director at the Standing for Freedom Center. Ryan, great to have you with us. 
Hey, Jack, it's great to be on with you. Now, the liberal city of Moscow, Idaho, has just agreed to pay out $300,000 to three people who it was determined they were wrongfully arrested by police during a Psalm Sing protest outside City Hall against COVID-19 orders. Now, Ryan, what do you make of this? Well, you know, I, I'm somewhat familiar with this case. In fact, I'm a friend of, of one of the plaintiffs, and I, I'm just speaking as a friend. I'm not speaking as necessarily a legal expert, but I will just say that uh, when this was happening in real time back in September of 2020, it was very clear, Jack, that there was a dual standard, a double standard that was being applied when it came to COVID-19 guidelines, regulations. It seemed as though law-abiding citizens, churches, churches in particular, doing the same thing they've always done, which is to meet regularly as they have had for 2,000 years on Sunday morning for worship, uh, that they were being targeted. You couldn't do that, but you could, you could go to a weed dispensary. You could go to a gambling hall, a casino. You could even go to a strip club. Uh, and there seemed to be no restrictions there. But if you were doing something that seemed to be normal, and by the way, there's no prohibition, there is no case in the Constitution where th that allows a dual standard to be applied in the, in the case of an emergency. Emergencies do not restrict your constitutional rights. And that's something that, that happened clearly in this case. And I believe the judge, the magistrate, duly elected, by the way, by the people, enforcing the law, interpreting the Constitution, I think he got this right. And why do you think they're being treated differently? Well, I mean, I, I have my own reasons to, uh, and, and suspicions here, uh, and certainly this would be more speculative, but I, but I do think that when it comes to the free exercise of religion, if you are a public health official, and I don't mean just in Moscow, Idaho, but, but across the country, um, you might not place the same kind of priority on what you believe to be religion versus what you codify as science. And, and I would just say that it was clear to me that science, the scientific method, um, you know, virology and other types of, of, of uh, studies and disciplines in medicine, it does not seem as though they were being applied in this instance. It just seemed as though there was a lot of hocus pocus when it came to these guidelines and restrictions regarding masks, regarding uh, social distancing, things that applied in certain contexts but didn't apply in others. For example, Jack, there was no airline that restricted the number of people that could fly. You, they were packed in by like sardines. None of them really separated. A mask did very little uh, to restrict, uh, you know, basically how this, you know, COVID could be passed along to uh, fellow riding passengers. So all of a sudden they decide in an outdoor event, that's more dangerous. Oh, and by the way, these people will comply if we try to go and arrest them. Uh, these people are not going to throw Molotov cocktails at police. They will comply with law enforcement. So they become an easy target. And so how do we ensure that something like this never happens again? I think the most important thing is that freedom belongs to the willing and those who are willing to keep it. And so at the end of the day, it's not because these things are enshrined on a piece of paper in a document in the National Archives there in Washington, D.C. That's not where our rights are derived from. They're ultimately from God and really those who are willing 
to defend those rights and to proclaim those rights again to each generation. We're only one generation away, as Ronald Reagan said, from having those freedoms stripped away from us. So I think at the end of the day, it's about those who are willing to protect and to stand up for their freedoms and the free exercise of religion. Well, with that, Ryan Helfenbein, Executive Director at the Standing for Freedom Center. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Jack. Appreciate it. And in lighter news, a scuba diver in California helped a woman retrieve a wedding ring she had lost in a lake while vacationing near Yosemite National Park. Despite visibility challenges, the diver was able to find it in less than two hours and documented the dive on YouTube. NTD's Jason Blair has more on this story. A Northern California scuba diver and YouTuber retrieved a woman's $9,500 lost wedding ring from a 45-foot deep lake near Yosemite National Park. Mike Pelly, who also goes by Merman Mike, was able to locate it using a flashlight and metal detector and documented the find on YouTube. And then I finally pulled up what I thought was going to be another piece of trash and ended up looking at a diamond and I just absolutely blew up with excitement underwater. Jenny Bowles, the ring's owner, was with family and friends over Father's Day weekend at Bass Lake. While making sure her two-year-old son didn't swim out too far, she felt her wedding ring slip off. I was really devastated. I was, I was praying with my friends all night that night. Like she then found Pelly on social media. So she actually commented on one of my TikTok videos at first and said, oh my gosh, I just lost my wedding ring at Bass Lake. Is there any way you could help? And I immediately responded to her and said, please send me a message on either my Facebook or Instagram account. At 45 feet, this was Pelly's deepest dive ever and due to silt at the bottom of the lake, the visibility was low. But after regrouping and a good throw, marking the area the ring was lost, Pelly was able to find the ring in under two hours. And he found it that quick. I was shocked. <laughs> A lot of me thought it was going to be an all-day search, and then I was still going to come up to a bunch of really sad faces. He helped a stranger. Like, he didn't know me from nobody, and I did not expect him to even say yes. And the fact that he does it as a volunteer thing is amazing. Pelly says he never charges money when he helps people recover lost items. If people insist, he will accept donations, but it's not required. I like to call it my full-time hobby. Um, I never want someone to feel like because they don't have extra money at that time that I wouldn't go down and search just as hard for their valuable as well. Pelly has been documenting his underwater finds on YouTube for the past few years. While jewelry is a commonly lost item, he also recovers phones, drones, and even this remote control truck. The good stories are what fuel me. And I just, I, I feel like I have this novel of amazing stories that I'll get to go back on the rest of my life and just always have a smile anytime I need it. Pelly plans to continue to help people find lost items and document his adventures. In the future, he hopes to transition into doing it full time. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.